Friends, let us pray. Redeeming God, summon us to joy, to wonder and to confident hope through the word and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Today's gospel reading is from the gospel according to Matthew, beginning with verse 35 of chapter 9 and continuing through the 8th verse of chapter 10. Let us hear God's word to us. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Then Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to cure every disease and every sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, also known as Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaan, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, proclaim the good news, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without payment, give without payment. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Everywhere Jesus went, he saw crowds harassed and helpless, oppressed and thrown to the ground, untended and uncared for. Everywhere he went, he saw people harried and helpless, tested and tried, burdened and overwhelmed, looking for something, something good from Jesus a healing touch, balm for a weary soul, a word of hope, the possibility of a future, the ability to imagine life beyond the life they knew. So imagine with me, if you will, Jesus traveling about cities and villages in the present day Jesus went around the globe, and everywhere he saw crowds harassed and helpless. He went to London, 
and saw them standing outside the charred remains of Grenfell Tower. He went to the waters off Japan and saw crews anxiously waiting for news about their fellow sailors. He went to a baseball field in the capital region and saw wounded legislators and staffers. He went to Minneapolis and he saw the family of yet another unarmed young black man fatally shot. Jesus went to Rochester and there too he saw crowds harassed and helpless. He went to the area known as the Crescent and he saw people living on the margins of the margins. He saw a grandmother caring for six young grandchildren, holding a home foreclosure notice in her hand. He saw special needs children in a school system that was failing them. He saw the young man whose best role model was a narcotics entrepreneur. He saw the Vietnam and Iraqi veteran struggling with PTSD sleeping in a tent under the Susan B. Anthony Bridge. And he saw the young teenage mother, still a baby herself. And then Jesus went to Brighton and Penfield and Fairport and Pittsford. He went to Webster, Irondequoit in Greece. He went to Chai Lai, to Gates and to Henrietta. He even went all the way out to Victor and beyond. And there, too, he saw people harassed and helpless. He saw the frustrated, angry parent who had reached her limit. He saw the person in midlife crisis because he lost his job. He saw the one coping with the death of a loved one gone too soon. He saw the one who struggles with depression or panic attacks. He saw the one whose relationship with her dad is simply not what she had imagined. He saw the one who feels dismissed because of age or gender or gender identity or ethnicity. He saw the recent graduate who sees no clear future ahead. He saw the retiree who wonders if he has any value anymore. And then Jesus even walked into Third Church. And he saw people trapped in the anxiety of the present day that's described so well by David Lose, the pressure exerted by our culture to have it all together, to be perfect, to have the ideal life and job and family, the pressure that's quietly crushing our spirits, the pressure that's particularly true of that generation that has grown up having to display their supposedly perfect lives on social media, the constant drive to take selfies and publish life updates and broadcast our thoughts, the drive that may be a sign of profound and increasing insecurity the futile effort of folks to deny that they are indeed harassed and helpless. 
When Jesus saw the crowds in London and Japan and the capital region and Minneapolis and Rochester and all of its suburbs and even in Third Presbyterian Church, he had compassion for them. Visceral, gut-level, genuine God with us compassion. Let that good news sink in for a minute. Jesus had compassion for them. Jesus has compassion for every broken and fearful person among us. Bask in it. It is good news indeed. Jesus knows how to do this, to heal the sick, to cure disease and dis-ease, to cast out demons of every sort. As Alexander Wimberly wrote of Jesus in the scriptural accounts, no distance is too great, no audience too skeptical, no disease too severe. Jesus gets it done. Except, we all know that's not how Jesus chose to continue his work. Jesus asked his followers to carry on his ministry after him, and that would be us, right? Just look at the list of apostles he sent out. There's Peter. We have a Peter, although it looks like he's taking the day off today. There's an Andrew. We have at least one of those in our congregation. There are two James, and then there's a John somewhere in the back. I know we have at least all of those. And I know we have a Thomas and a Matthew and a Philip. We're already up to eight of the 12. I think we even have a youth named Simon. Now, I didn't have a church directory in front of me when I wrote this sermon, so I don't know for sure if we have a Bartholomew or a Thaddeus or a Judas, but surely we have a lengthy list of substitutes we could call. Jesus asks his followers to carry on his ministry of compassion, and he calls the present-day church to carry it on, and here is where the rub is for me. You see, I don't know about you, but I found myself somewhere in that lengthy list of sometimes harassed and sometimes helpless people. We, the church, are made up of people who are ourselves harassed and helpless in our own particular ways. And we are, at the same time, called to minister to others who are harassed and helpless in their own ways. To which I say, what's up with that? What was Jesus thinking? Perhaps Jesus got it wrong. Except that he's had over 2,000 years to change his mind and so far it seems he is sticking with the original plan. Ministry and mission can be hard and lengthy 
even without the complications of our own brokenness and frailty. And there's no denying that that's just the way it is. It, it takes a long time. And more often than not, we don't get to see if our efforts make a lasting difference. It rubs against the age that we live in, the age of the quick fix. The quick fix mentality, wrote Edwin Friedman, flies from challenge. It has a low threshold for pain and focuses on symptom relief rather than fundamental change. It wants more than speed, it wants certainty. Who in the church hasn't ever wanted certainty about our future? I have. I happen to like quick fixes a lot. Take the illness that kept me down all of last week. When my doctor finally said he thought a particular prescription might give me some relief, I couldn't make it to the pharmacy fast enough. Given the choice between a long, drawn-out ordeal and a speedy solution, I will take the quick fix every time. So it's no wonder it's been a long time since I have prayed for patience. By my count, it's been at least 17 years, and I know because I remember where I was living at the time that I made that conscious decision. It was either in 1999 or 2000 when I made that decision not to pray for patience, and I'm here to tell you I have resolutely held to that ever since. Even after four years of theological education, even after seven years ordained as a minister of word and sacrament, I have not broken down. Why? It's like the proverbial, be careful what you wish for, or in this case, be careful what you pray for, because I fear that if I pray for it, I will find myself facing some difficult challenge that brings with it a chance to practice the very patience I have just prayed for. So I pray for quick fixes instead. I wish I could tell you that my little scheme has been working. But it seems God is not interested in being manipulated like a puppet. And it seems God is not interested in shortcuts. And it shouldn't be a surprise. For a little perspective, Friedman wrote, life processes evolve by taking their time. It took a half a billion years for the first self-replicating life forms, almost three billion more for the first multicellular organisms, still another half a billion for the rise of hominids, and another half a million until the appearance of our species, Homo sapiens. Growth, whether of a flower or of a baby, follows similar laws to this day, and growth, meaning maturation, evolves in the same way. There is nothing quick or easy about the mission and ministry of Christ's church, whether from the perspective of the one who is waiting desperately for compassion like the crowds in Jesus' day, 
or from the perspective of the one reaching out in compassion to serve. Wimberly wrote that when we juxtapose Jesus' accomplishments with the disciples' tasks, they seem destined to fall short. They can't go everywhere Jesus did. They won't find everyone welcoming. They won't be able to fix every ailment they find. There's hardship at every turn. And yet, that didn't stop Jesus from commissioning his disciples. He called them anyway. And in spite of their shortcomings, Matthew says he gave them the authority they needed to do everything Christ called them to do. And in the verses following today's reading, Jesus tells his disciples what they're going to face. And it won't always be easy, for the work of discipleship and compassion can be hard. Sometimes it's costly. He didn't call superheroes. He called ordinary folks who deal with the stuff of life. The Apostle Paul put it a different way in his letter to the church at Rome. We boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. That doesn't mean that God randomly sends suffering. It doesn't mean we're supposed to seek it. It simply speaks to the reality of life's journey. And in that journey, says Brent Latham, God has chosen not only to go with us, bearing us along, but also to be our very goal. A few nights ago, my husband Brad and I gathered with a few other friends for a sing-along around the piano. Now, several of us in the room grew up in a tradition that sang some old, old gospel songs, ones I haven't sung in decades, ones with hokey tunes and hokey lyrics, even ones that seem to have some flawed theology based on too literal interpretations of scripture, in my opinion. They tended to have a theme like, life on this earth is bad, really, really bad, uh, but just you wait. Someday I'll make it to that mansion just over the hilltop. It seemed to me to ignore the reality of Christ's call to us today in the here and now, and so I was ready to feel theologically smug. And then our friend pointed out that many of those old gospel songs that we sang and the ones that I poo-pooed were, were written during the Great Depression. And they had bouncy tunes, and they were filled with hope with genuine hope born of hardship 
endurance and growth. And though I could and I still do quibble with the literalness of their claims, I realized that the hope those old songs were attempting to express in spite of hardship was the same hope in which we live and breathe. In his book, The Road to Character, David Brooks writes, we don't create our lives, we are summoned by life. The important answers are not found inside, they are found outside. And this perspective begins not within the autonomous self, but with the concrete circumstances in which you happen to be embedded. This perspective begins with an awareness that the world existed long before you and will last long after you, and that in the brief span of your life you have been thrown by fate, by history, by chance, by evolution, or by God into a specific place with specific problems and needs. And your job is to figure certain things out. What does this environment need in order to be made whole? What is it that needs repair? What tasks are lying around waiting to be performed? Or as the novelist Frederick Buechner put it, at what points do my talents and deep gladness meet the world's deep need? So let us go. Let us find the crowds who are harassed and helpless and in need of compassion. Let us proclaim the good news. Let us bring them healing and hope and life. And in so doing, may we find our own. Amen.